The Talking Points podcast is produced in partnership with C. Michael Gibson and clinicaltrialresults.org. Hi, Mike Gibson and Paulus Kirchhoff here talking about the early rhythm control of atrial fibrillation and outcomes. Very important study just presented. Paulus, talk to us a little bit about why you did it, how you did it, and what you found. Yeah. So um, uh, the question of whether restoring normal sinus rhythm and maintaining sinus rhythm improves outcome compared to having atrial fibrillation has, uh, well, I would almost say, haunted uh, cardiologists um, for two decades. Uh, you will recall that in 2002, the Affirm and Grace trials were published back to back in the Union Journal, and they tested whether rhythm control therapy, as it was not at the time, uh, with antiarrhythmic drugs and cardioversion, stopping anticoagulation after a certain period of uh, documented sinus rhythm uh, improved outcomes. And of course, in those trials, they did. Um, but many in the field, including myself, I have to admit, believe that sinus rhythm is better for you than having atrial fibrillation. Um, we also know, and that is really the outcome of a lot of pathophysiological research of the last two decades, that um, atrial fibrillation causes damage in the atria that becomes permanent and irreversible, at least in part, after a few weeks or months of having it rhythm. So that restoring and maintaining sinus rhythm, rhythm control early on should be more effective and therefore probably safer than uh, the current delayed approach. We also have epidemiological data to suggest that the risk of adverse events is highest in the first year after diagnosing AF. So that in summary, that early treatment period provides um, a window of opportunity for rhythm. And how did, did your study differ from, from some of the previous studies that did not find um, benefit? So I think there are a few things that are worth highlighting. Uh, one is we had, we tried to make sure that all patients in both study arms, early rhythm control and usual care, received optimal guideline from form therapy. And I think we achieved that. We have over 90% of patients in both arms who were anticoagulated both at the start of the study and at two years. Blood pressure was normal on average in both arms without differences. Uh, background treatments for heart failure or hypertension or diabetes were well delivered and well-balanced between the therapy groups. So I think that is one big difference. The second difference, as I already highlighted, we treated early. So uh, we had two main inclusion criteria. One was um, patients had to have cardiovascular risk factors, so approximating a chance mask score of two or more. And second, patients had to have atrial fibrillation uh, in its early stages. So either first diagnose atrial fibrillation or diagnose within a year prior to enrollment. And that is the difference to the early trials. The third difference, of course, is that we have become better in delivering rhythm control therapy. We now know better than 20 years ago how to use antiarrhythmic drugs. 
we have one new drug available, but also we now have AF ablation as a routine tool available in patients in whom maintenance of sinus rhythm is difficult. And I think these are some of the factors that are different. So a lot of changes. How long ago were the patients enrolled in the previous studies? I mean, how long back uh, was that practice pattern that they studied? I mean, was that a decade old pattern compared to this? I mean, <clears throat> put the uh, change in duration and timing of the practice pattern change in perspective. So um, uh, Affirm and Grace were published in 2002. So they were really studies that evaluated AF therapy as we did it in the last millennium. Right. And we started enrollment in 2011, and it really picked up in 2012. So there is at least a 15-year difference. And it's a 15-year difference where we've learned a lot about uh, how to best anticoagulate patients, and also less prominent, uh, how to deliver rhythm control therapy, and of course, the ablation. And we also have newer, better oral anticoagulants that change the field as well in both arms, right? To, yes, that was across both arms. And I know you're going to talk to us about the design, but I think you said something very important about AF ablation. What proportion of patients in this current era, in your study, received ablation in the rhythm management arm? So, um, Mike, I'll talk a bit about the patients in general, because I think that puts it into perspective. So we had a I think an average at-risk patient cohort of patients with very recently diagnosed atrial fibrillation. So mean age was 60 years. We had almost 50% women, which is great, I think. Um, about 30% had heart failure. Almost 40% had that first episode of AF at enrollment. 30% were asymptomatic. And the median time between the initial diagnosis of AF and enrollment was 36 days. So Half of the patients were enrolled within a bit over a month after the first diagnosis of AF, and all had AF lasting less than a year. In those patients, this was clearly early therapy was the first rhythm control treatment. This was not a cohort of patients with uh, drug failure. Um, and so initially, 95% of the patients randomized to early rhythm control received rhythm control therapy, and 8% had AF ablation, and the other, um, or oh, I have to calculate that now, 85%, 84% had different antiarrhythmic drugs. At two years, 20%, or 19.4% to be precise, of the patients had undergone AF ablation, but still the majority were managed with antiarrhythmic drugs. We haven't published the full data, but the proportion of patients with AF ablation is slowly increasing throughout the follow-up time, which was a median of uh, a bit over five years per patient. And let me ask you, did the people in the, the without the rhythm control, did they cross over and perhaps get ablation as well? Well, this is a brilliant question, Mark. Um, first thing to say is this was a strategy trial, and the primary analysis was in the randomized groups as randomized. There is no crossover. Okay. So we accepted that rhythm control was not successful at everyone, but they stayed in that group. And we accepted, and that was part of the usual care arm, that whilst most patients would be treated with weight control only initially, which is what most of us would currently do when they see a patient with newly diagnosed AF and stroke risk factors, 
some of them will need remodeling. So I no, it's a little bit like a timing in some ways. It's a strategic trial, like you say, and you know, some people eventually had to cross over. It's a little bit like in my world, invasive cardiology, where you know, it's either an early invasive strategy or people go conservative and then cross over. So, all right, well, what, what proportion of people ended up crossing over to a rhythm control? Yeah, I, sorry to be a bit pedantic, but it's not a crossover. So, but 15% of the patients received rhythm control therapy of those who were allocated usual care. And that was because they had um, AF-related symptoms Right. on optimal rate control therapy. It's actually quite interesting because if you look at observational data sets of general AF patients, about 10 to 20% receive rhythm control. So that is very close to our current practice pattern in the general AF population. Well, that's good because it mimicked how we're currently doing, uh, how we're currently managing patients, right? So that's good. And I mean, the headline finding, um, by the time people who watch this video most would have seen it, is that early rhythm control prevented every fifth primary outcome event compared to usual care. So we had a, the first primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular death, stroke, hospitalization for worsening of heart failure, and hospitalization for acute coronary syndrome. And that's first primary outcome occurred in 249 patients assigned to early therapy. And that was 21% lower than the um, 316 patients in usual care who had the first primary outcome. A highly significant result. By the way, we actually terminated the trial at the third planned interim analysis, so prior to the planned end of the trial, at a P of 0.05. So every fifth of these events was prevented by starting rhythm control systematically early at time of randomization. And talk to us a little bit about the individual components uh, about death. When you say stroke, was it combined ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke? Um, talk to us a little bit about whether they all went in the same direction. So the first reassuring finding is that all components of the first primary outcome went into the same direction. So we had fewer cardiovascular death in patients randomized to early rhythm control. We had fewer strokes in patients randomized to early rhythm control. We had fewer heart failure hospitalizations and fewer acute heart symptoms. Now, when you calculate the unadjusted 95% confidence intervals, and the New England Journal emphasizes that these are unadjusted, and I want to do the same thing. Uh, they do not cross the line of identity for cardiovascular death and stroke. Um, and they do cross the line of identity for the other two components of the outcome, but they all go in the same direction. We also did a very um, careful subgroup analysis. So we predefined clinical subgroups, for example, asymptomatic patients, patients with heart failure, men and women, old and young. We also did a blind analysis of the factors that influence the primary outcome in the totality of the data set and use those factors as subgroups. And the effect of early rhythm control was consistent across all subgroups tested. There was not a single interaction. Well, that's important to hear. So does this change practice? Um, do you think this process or practice pattern will be widely implemented as a result of the study, Paulus? 
Now, clearly, this is one study, and uh, we have just presented it a few days ago. It was published in the New England Journal just a few days ago. So there needs to be a thorough dissection and discussion of the results with the community. Um, I can speak for myself, and, and I think that is actually the opinion of the people who designed the trial, who ran the trial, and who participated in the trial. We think that the results conclusively show that um, early rhythm control therapy prevents outcomes in patients with recently diagnosed AF and smoking disorders. In the context of is the practice changing, it's always important to look at safety. And um, the primary safety outcome, which was a composite of death, stroke, and serious adverse events related to rhythm control therapy, occurred in 231 patients in early rhythm control and 223 in usual care. So it was not different. Numerically, there were fewer deaths, fewer strokes, and more side effects of rhythm control therapy. But over the five-year follow-up, in 1,395 patients, we only had 68 patients who had a serious adverse events related to rhythm control therapy and early therapy, and um, a bit less than 20 patients in um, usual care. So rhythm control therapy as delivered in the EAST trial is also safe. And therefore, in my opinion, this is practice changing. And we should offer rhythm control therapy to all patients with newly diagnosed AI and stroke risk practice based on results of this trial. Apollos, congratulations. It just goes to show you, you know, we thought that um, rhythm control really didn't do much, but really, this really probably changes things. Thanks for your careful study. Thanks for your very, very uh, persuasive presentation. And uh, thanks for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for joining us here in the digital presentation era of ESC 2020. <laughs>